from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket This is Spaz, and thank you for listening to another episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Got a very special guest for you. One of my musical heroes, Mr. Ron Flint. Boy, him and Steve Allen sure made a lot of great music in the band 2020, and Ron has continued that tradition in his solo career as well. We talk about both 2020, his solo career, and the brand new digital deluxe edition of his L.A. Story album. So anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy this special episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo Originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma, singer, songwriter, musician, and producer Ron Flint first made a name for himself in 2020. The legendary power pop band he formed with his longtime friend Steve Allen once they moved to LA in the late 70s. With a debut release that was named the number one greatest power pop album in John Borak's book, Shake Some Action 2.0, 2020 certainly left their mark. The band initially split in the early 80s, but have reunited on occasion since then, and Ron remains close friends with Steve Allen to this day. Over the years, Ron has released a handful of solo albums, as well as appearing on various tribute projects. Now living in Houston, Texas, and operating his successful Jumping Dog studio, Ron has just released a digital deluxe edition of his 2004 solo album, L.A. Story. This deluxe edition features a remastered version of the album, plus newly recorded acoustic versions of all of the album's tracks. L.A. Story consists of songs that tell the tale of Ron's life in Los Angeles during the 2020 years. I was able to chat with Ron about his entire career, starting with 2020, and leading up to the digital release of the deluxe edition of L.A. Story. What you are about to hear are the highlights of that conversation. Welcome to the Blanket Fort, Ron Flynn. Before we chat about the deluxe edition of L.A. Story, let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember the first time that music had a profound effect on you? Well, yeah, uh, it was in church. Yeah, growing up. Um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and they, they played all those all those great old Southern Baptist hymns. And uh, 
that, that had a, a, a profound a spiritual and a, um, a musical effect on me. Well, what age did you decide that that's what I want to do? I want to make music. Oh, that was uh, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. You could hear that decision being made all over the world at that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Were there other influences that also inspired you? Well, you know, in Oklahoma, I'm from Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, you know, at that point in time, AM radio was, was king, and the, the two-minute, 20-second singles um, were the were what you what you heard on, on most music stations on the radio, especially the rock and roll stations. And there there wasn't the you know the plethora, if you will, of choices that exist today uh, for for finding music. So what you found was what you got on on AM radio. And fortunately for me, at that point in time in in the sixties, a lot of the music was just great. If there's no other way to put it. It was I, I think there, it was a renaissance of, of sorts of things like the the Motown records and the California records and and then the, of course the all of the British stuff um, the, the primarily centered around the Beatles was um, profoundly influential for me. I think. Well, when and how did you cross paths with Steve Allen? Oh, Steve and I met uh, in the summer of the fifth grade. Uh, we had both moved to an, um, a new uh, little chunk of suburbia outside of uh, uh, in, in uh, southeast Tulsa, and we were since we were new kids, we were placed on a new baseball team together uh, with mostly misfits and and other new guys. So that's that's where we met. And then one afternoon after practice, his mom was uh, giving me a ride home, and uh, the subject of music came up and. His mom said, oh, well, Steve has a guitar. You guys should get together. And a few days later, we did, and we've kind of been getting together ever since in one form or another. You started playing together. What was the local Tulsa scene like? I mean, you had Dwight Twilley, right? Well, we didn't know Dwight back then, and Dwight really didn't move in the same circles that, that we did. We were playing live in all the all the three two beer halls and the saloons and uh, uh, sock hops and stuff like that. Dwight and Phil, uh, I don't think they did very much of that. They were more in Dwight's room making tapes and and working on, on music from a, from a different angle. Uh, they had an act called Oyster back then, but I don't remember, you know, crossing paths and the Battle of the Bands and that kind of stuff around the little towns around Tulsa. So I think that was, they, they were in a different, in a different uh, uh, stream, if you will. Now, how long had you been playing before you decided we're going to L.A., and what inspired that move? Well, Steve and I uh, both went to uh, the same uh, university in, in Stillwater, and we, we were playing in Stillwater the entire time and playing a lot. Um, we had a, a all moderately successful uh, bar band type, type cover act, and uh, but we were always writing songs and, and trying to do original things. We were 
influenced by some of the new wave and punk stuff that was coming down the pipe. And then Steve um, went to California uh, with some friends and and had association with some friends of ours who, who were out there at the same time and was able to uh, make a deal with uh, Bomp Records to make a single. And um, that single eventually became the first 2020 single. It was actually Steve's single. Um, and so St- Steve moved out, I think, in... Um, I think it was right around November, I think, because I remember it being Thanksgiving. And then I I graduated uh, from music school the following May and then moved out just a few days after I I got out of school. writing songs were you inspiring each other i mean like did you hear something like uh steve came up with you know let's say giving it all or yellow pills did you feel that wow that's a great song i have to top that and that inspired you to go write something it absolutely did and steve and and i'm, I'm you you know this I'm, I'm sure you or you might think this that steve was the heart and soul of 2020 he was the guy that that had the engine and, you know, back home in Oklahoma, before we left, he was absolutely the top gun guitarist among a lot of guitar players, a lot of great guitarists. Steve studied with Eldon Shamblin and and just had had a, had that extra spark that you see among really creative uh, musicians. So just being around him and uh, schooling up from him inspired me to try you know, to, just to try as hard as I could. He also had a great uh, uh, work ethic uh, of writing and rewriting and trying and trying to get things better and better and lots of listening, listening to, uh, you know, to what was going on at the time and and trying to, you know, try to, to keep your finger on, on the pulse of, of, of things that we like. And and also, this this was also a time, that in, in a little ways, it I wouldn't say there have been a, a dark ages of, of pop music, but there wasn't a lot of the kind of stuff that I really liked on the radio at the time. And there was then there was starting to be a, a renaissance of, of uh, guitar-driven pop music uh, happening. And so there was a lot. There were lots of things to listen to and say, "Oh, I really like that." I'm, I, I identify with that, you know. And if, and if they're doing it, then I can do it too. From the time you guys got to LA to the time that. 2020 started playing out live about how long was that it wasn't long it was months uh after we met uh mike gallo uh it was we got i think our first gig was at a french bakery over on fairfax um where just our friends came and when when steve and i moved to to california about 11 12 13 other okies all moved out there at the same exact time i mean within days of each other so you can imagine when we got there, we weren't alone. We had friends that we had known for a long, long time that that, that we had a little network, and then that network kind of expanded. Um, so for us, in, on, in a social sense, it, it was easier than I imagine it would be for someone that, you know, went out there by themselves and, um, you know, lived in lived on a flop house at 
uh, on Vine. So, so when we started playing, we had some friends who would come, and there were other bands that, that we thought were kind of like us that, that were trying to do the same thing too. What was 2020's relationship with the other bands in LA? I mean, did you hang out with, you know, let's say the Plimsolls or the Knack or Busboys or bands like that, or was it pretty competitive? Honestly, Stephen, I never felt competitive. I, I always thought we were a singular thing, and I always, I often got inspired. But I never thought, oh, um, I never had siding for them. For them, I always thought, good for you. It's it's the you know, um, it's the rising tide syndrome. So when, especially once I I met Pete and the other guys in the pencils, and I heard those songs that were that I totally identified with, um, and then Gary Valentine, and um, not so much than that. For some reason, I never. I never really knew any of those any of those cats, um, but the other other bands that in some would say in our ilk, uh, yeah, I, I hear them and I and I I would I often would like them quite a bit. Initially, you were a trio with Mike Gallo, but then you brought uh, Chris Delaggi on as a fourth member. Was this to toughen up the sound live, and did you enjoy this new dynamic that he brought to the band? I loved it. And here's a, here's the interesting thing. I don't know whether uh, you know. I don't know if anyone would even care. But a, a lot of the bands all rehearsed at this place called uh, the Wilshire Fine Arts Center, and it was neither fine arts. The only thing accurate about it was that it was a center. It wasn't even on Wilshire. It was pretty. It was pretty a uh, dumpy place, and uh, we had become friends with Pete. Pete was uh, before he would he, he formed the Plimsolls. He'd come from the mills, and we'd ask him to come over and play um, rehearse with us because we were looking for you know another member. And uh, he came and played with us. It sounded great. We we asked him to join that night. He said yes, and then he went home and he got to thinking about it, and he. He, I think it was even the next day, early the next day, he called and said that he, he didn't want to do it. He wanted to have his own thing. And and so there went Pete. And then fortunately, uh, we got to know Chris, and, and Chris was the perfect fit because this is a great keyboard player, had very um, uh, had great ideas, you know, about songs and production. And, and he was great lot. His, people loved him a lot. Well, eventually you signed to Portrait Records. Now, was life on a major label different than what you expected it to be, or did you have no preconceptions? I really did not have preconceptions, but I, I, I look back on it now and I think I was so lucky that I was I was the lucky guy there with all this talent, and this happened. And at the time, I almost thought that it was preordained that it was supposed to happen. That yeah, the, you 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 leave Oklahoma in a shitty car, you, you barely make it to Los Angeles, and in a matter of months, you sign a massive record deal with the largest record company in the world, and then you go into this gorgeous recording studio with this great engineer, and you make a record. It seemed like it did. It seemed like it was supposed to happen, and I I look back on it with a little bit of regret, thinking I wish I had 
appreciated it a little bit more. I wish I'd have, uh, you know, pulled all the all the meat off the bone, if you if you know what I mean. Um, but even 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 having said that, I I did really appreciate it, and I knew I was lucky, and and uh, I, I I did try to savor as much of it as I could. I, I will tell you this: it was very very busy. There were a lot of expectations, and then we went from just having a couple of us to look after to have having sort of a machine that that revolved around the band and what we were doing and what we were trying to do and and whatever little success we could have. So it was a very it was intense and very busy, but it was a wonderful time as well. Just magical. Well, album had you know uh, sherry remember the lightning yellow pills and these are now considered quote-unquote power pop classics did you even hear the term power pop being lobbied in your direction uh during that time yes yes and there i i bristled at it at times mostly just because it was a label of any kind and um but now i look back on it and i think well gosh yeah i mean if 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 the kids are all right, it's considered power pop. You can call anything I do power pop just to be under that same umbrella. Well, what are your memories of recording that album? And I've I've heard Earl Mankey is great to work with. Oh yeah, he was wonderful. He was he's brilliant. Uh, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't compare myself to him in a million years, but I am in the same business as he is. I'm I'm I own a recording studio and. And I do a lot of engineering. Um, the, the, one of the strongest memories I have is that a lot of that record was recorded at night in the off hours. It, it was at a studio called uh, Sound City um, out in the valley. And we would leave Hollywood uh, around sunset and, and drive out there in somebody's car, you know, whomever's. And we'd get there and we'd start... We'd start recording. South City's beautiful recording studio. Uh, the the big cutting room is fantastic. Um, and Earl was 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 wonderful. Everything was done on tape, so the pace of recording was dramatically different than it is now. Um, and we used to smoke a lot of pot. We'd go out there and get high a little bit, and 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 then get down, you know, get down to work. We we had a pretty good uh, work work ethic at the time. Um, so. My, my fundamental memories of, of making the record are, are are all positive. There were some stressful aspects of it, um, but in general, I I I I was very happy with the recordings um, as they were happening. Well, was there ever a, a period or a song that, as soon as you finished it, you said that's going to be a hit? Well, I I was very fond of Yellow Pills. I I I knew that Steve had something special there. And that the, that the that the entire record kind of hung around that. You know, even still today, long form recordings they generally hang off of one, maybe two songs. 
you know, song one, song one, side two, the third song on the record, just some song that makes the statement that sets out the turf, you know, for the record that, that says this is where we are, this is who we are, this is what we're going to explore. And I, I think Yellow Pills was was that record. And Earl's work on it was just, it, 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 he, he was pushing the envelope even then. He had been doing some pretty uh, adventurous stuff at Brother Records and with Sparks, but he had he had this this big fancy powerful machine at his fingertips and he really knew how to use it. Any track from that album that you think maybe doesn't get enough attention? Because I think something like Leaving Your World Behind is an absolute gem, yet I really don't ever hear people talk about that one. Well, it could be because the lyrics are kind of shitty. So, and <laughs> every day can't be Sunday, Stephen. So. <laughs> <laughs> second long player lookout it seemed a bit darker in tone although it was still just a, this great melodic amazing record now mike had been replaced by joel and you were working with uh richard portler who, who i guess had been working with uh dwight um did you did you feel pressure from the label when it time or you know when it came time to record the album well yes yes the first record did pretty well so at, we we were safe from not getting well. I wouldn't say safe, but we were in a gray zone of of moving forward. Um, our the entire label staff that was there at Portrait when we got signed, they were all fired. Um, in between the the first two records, and new people came on board that were not involved in signing us, and really didn't have they they had no skin in the game, so it didn't make any difference to them one way or the other what happened with us. And we had been we had we had a song called uh, "Strange Side of Love" that we that we recorded and kind of tarted up and gave it to them, and they liked it and and decided you know to to help us you know not help us but to greenlight it to moving moving forward. And so yeah, there there was pressure from from the label, and it was the first time that I had experienced anything like that. Uh, like, oh come on guys, you gotta come up with something to to prove that that you're that you're um whatever you are. So so yeah, it was a 
there was some pressure there. And also uh, politically, um, you know, you think about the timing of it, the apocalypse now had just come out. But, uh, President Reagan was having a profound influence on society. So, yeah, we, we, it was dark. There were, there were dark undercurrents running, running through it. And, um, but then there was also, uh, some, some positive vibes. Like, uh, it's pretty exciting. It's a, it's a happy little love song. album was more maybe more of a mature album well i i every songwriter should try to get better and should should try to have something to say that's 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 worth saying but i guess sometimes all songwriters can be fall victim to overreach trying to reach farther than what they can grab so maybe there was a little bit of for me certainly there was i i, I know that i was I was trying as hard as I could, and, and and you know, like you take a song like the American Dream, that that was so so close, but it was still a miss, you know. And I think that, I think that lyrically, still trying to trying to get better, but but uh, having not landed it all the time. And if there are problems with that record, most of those problems were mine with um, uh, you know songs that didn't that didn't hold up to where they should have been. Well, Nuclear Boy was a huge hit in L.A. And uh, I thought that the label should have got maybe behind that one. And I guess at this time I started to think, well, I don't think this label understands the band. But are there songs on that album that you uh, feel got overlooked? Steve's got a lot of great ones on there, too. Oh, yeah. All of Steve's stuff was was terrific. You know, I think they landed on Strange Side of Love to be the first single even before Nuclear Boy was finished. And the same thing with the first record. They decided that Sherry would be the first single. For I think it was because the the subject matter of Yellow Pills, even though it was on the radio everywhere, all over the world, they still thought that, you know, the love song should be the the first single. Well, you know, look back on it, it was, it's easy to second-guess it now. But at the time, you know, you're looking at these guys that have been in the record industry forever who'd who been involved in massive hits from all of your favorite people and this is what they're saying well you know I'm a nuclear boy and I live in the that album you left portrait chris and joel left the band and then you and steve continued and you released the third album sex trap in 1982 now at this point you were obviously uh, working independently did you prefer that freedom or was it kind of tough going from major label uh back to indie i did not prefer it however um 
the band was successful enough that we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. And that was what we decided to do. We had a, we had a good friend, Steve Ripley, brilliant engineer, producer, who took on who took on that that task of, of producing uh, Sex Trap. And I, I think we were uh, again. You can and you can hear it in the songs. We're we're really trying. We're trying to to swing for the fences and also trying to make a, a record that we that I, that I think we thought we we always had in us the this sort of three piece power pop outfit. Um, that you know, I, I guess that was what we thought we were supposed to do, and it's what we did. So. And then it had a second iteration um, after we signed to uh, Enigma Records. They wanted it to be more current, more uh, synthy, more missing persons. You know, sounding and uh, and I can absolutely say without equivocation that that was a mistake. Jack's got a problem, which was added to that version, was actually a great song, and it got played a lot on karaoke. Was that song actually written during the same sessions as uh, Sex Trap, or did you guys write that specifically for this upgraded, remixed version of the album? That's what we did. We we were looking for something. Um, the label thought we needed something a little bit. Hey, kids, we don't hear a single, you know, that sort of thing. So so uh, Steve had the, the meat of the song. I think I might have come up with a bridge and maybe a, a lyric or two here and there. Um, and then the, the, the feeling of it with the, with the, uh, synth, the mod synths and um, the, the remix that uh, Norman Durkee did, um, it was it was a, it was an attempt to go down that MTV uh, rabbit hole, you know. And then, you know, I look back on it and I think, well, what? Why were we trying to do that? Well, we were trying to do that because everybody was trying to do that. He said he had a burning pain deep inside, and when he gets choked up, it runs and hides. We can't. A lot of people have said that song's about Jack Lee. It, it is not. It's about a very good friend of ours uh, who thankfully came came out the other side as one of the finest people you'd ever want to meet. And uh, uh, just a brilliant person. And and um, But, you know, I don't know if you know many, but I know I know more than one who 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 went down that path and didn't and didn't come back. Uh, and this, this problem exists in our society today, uh, magnified by a magnitude of, I'm not even sure what, but it's much, much worse now than it was back then. Yeah, and shows no signs of, of slowing down. You know, Stephen, I don't think it does either. And now there is a huge corporate machine behind making sure that people still suffer those problems. Back then, 
it was more of a street corner thing. It was uh, it was harder, you know, to get trapped into it. Which is why I think fewer people got trapped into it back then. But now it's on television. It's it's corporate. So and and it's it's amplified by social media. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And people hurt these days in ways that they didn't hurt back then. And I'm not talking physically. Yeah, I mean they're. There's a yearning and a searching for for people these days, and they don't really have they don't have the kind of leadership that that might help them stay out of that the dark side. did you and Steve decide to split up 2020 and did you stick around LA for a while or did you go elsewhere? No, Steve decided um, because I think he had, he had different ideas that he didn't feel like fit into what had become um, the 2020 expectations. If you know what I mean? Um, me and, and, and really thank God for, for Steve because me, I would have stuck, I would have stuck with it to the day I died. I don't tend to, I don't tend to see the the train coming until it's too late. If you know what I mean, it really didn't take long after Steve made that decision for me to decide to go back home, and so I, I kind of, uh, I packed up what I had into a little car and and took off in the middle of the night and drove straight through back home to Oklahoma. Well, did the relationship between you and Steve survive the breakup, or did it take a while for the two of you to communicate again? No, we were fine. Man, when you play baseball with somebody in the fifth grade, you're tight. The things that Steve and I have been through, no, I I never felt anything like that. And if Steve did, it would be news to me. Well, did you immediately, when you went back to Tulsa, did you start playing music again, or did you sort to sort of take a break from it? No, uh, within days, I was at a recording studio there that uh, a friend of mine, where a friend of mine worked. And pretty soon, I became close friends with the owner, main engineer, producer there, and was doing all kinds of work there, just whatever needed doing. While I was, I also worked in a in a uh, kind of a hi-fi shop, if you will, you know, sold record players and things like that. Um, but I know I started playing just uh, within months, well, weeks probably. And were you just right back to writing and recording again? Uh, I don't yeah, I don't know how much writing I was doing, but I was playing a lot. And then uh, I got an opportunity to start playing in a, a fairly popular band uh, here, you know, as another, uh, rev- here, not here, uh, in Oklahoma as another revenue stream, you know, which I needed. Uh, and then I then I did start writing uh, again, writing for that band. Well, which band was that? It was called Andy Gravity. And uh, uh, here on the in the Oklahoma bar circuit, it was... They, they were enormously popular. They had this real charismatic, uh, white, blue-eyed soul singer. And uh, it was great. It was a great second job, that's for sure. My baby has a cloud around her heart. It ain't pretty, it's a shroud of burning cross. Cause inside I feel the crumb. 
13 years after Sex Trap, 2020 returned with Four Day Tornado alongside the uh, CD reissue of your first two albums. How did that reunion come about? Well, that fellow that I told you about, Bill Belknap, the fellow that owned Long Branch, who, who you know gave me all these opportunities at, at his place, uh, he's, he's a world-class drummer. He's just, he's one of the best drummers you'll ever hear. He worked on the, um, the, the soundtracks for Rumblefish and The Outsiders, those, those movies that were made in Tulsa with Francis Ford Coppola films. And he, he, he and I, that formed a very strong musical bond. And then Steve and he and I just started playing together. Just, um, there, you know, when, when Sony decided to reissue the record, there was some interest in us making another record. And so that's how that all came about. Well, I think the great thing about Four Day Tornado is the fact that both you and Steve brought songs that reflected who you were at that point in your life, and you, you didn't attempt to replicate the sound of the early albums. I mean, do you think it would have worked if you even tried to sit down and write something like Nuclear Boy or Sherry? I don't know. You know, at the time, I was not in that kind of space, and most most other most of the music industry wasn't in, in that kind of space at all. Um, I, I don't think it would have worked. No, I, um, and, and so I think so many times if you, if you're trying too hard to, to fit, fit something into a mold rather than just writing something that you like, that pleases you, that makes a statement that you feel is worth making. And then, then maybe if you need to push it in a certain way, do, do that. But you know, I think that that's what we should, what we should have been doing. I think it was what we were trying to do. There was a long gap, you know, and I think that gap, um, the gap of time, if you will, you know, between Sex Trap and Four Day Tornado. It had we maybe uh, stuck with it a little bit more in, in phases in that period of time, we might have had a different record. But then again, I listened to Four Day Tornado the other day, and, and it's it's a brilliant sounding record. Bill Belknap did a great job on the production. It's dated now, but so many of those records from that time are dated. Drinking wine more than he ought to, keeping hours much too late, just like me, he's lost all color, kind of pale and feeling faint. Three years later, you released Interstate, which continued in that same vein, but it was better production, much more depth and emotion, I think. And were these songs that you and Steve had written for your own projects and then decide to use them, or did you uh, write them specifically for Interstate? They were written for Interstate, except for the only one that wasn't uh, was a tune called uh, Picasso's Big Blue Heart. I'd, I'd written that for a, a, a record that, uh, that I was working on at, at the same time. And then Steve heard it and thought it might be a... Uh, he had the idea to do it in a uh, in a rock pile kind of style, which is how we how we did it on that on that record. It took the shuffle out of it, and um, and I I, I like that version too. Um, I was working on a a, a record that was soon that was 
fairly soon become uh, Big Blue Heart, that where that record, you know, we were talking earlier about how a song is the linchpin of a, of a, of a record. That, that song had been the linchpin. My plan was that song would be the linchpin of, of Big Blue Heart. Well, he might be the greatest painter, kings and presidents, his friends, but just like me, he's one day older. I got no reason to pretend. A single brush stroke on a canvas Oh, how cool this twist of fate Cause just like me, he hates the message But lets the messenger escape And God alone knows And he's taking his time Because his big blue heart Is just like mine now, what can you tell us about that album? Well, um, you know, I, I had moved to Austin um, by then, and uh, even as active as 2020 was was being at times, it really wasn't as as fulfilling as I as I wanted. I, I wanted more, so i i started I started working on this record, and got about uh, I guess maybe halfway through. And by then, I'd put a band together. We were playing around Austin. We were doing pretty good. And then there's this music conference here, uh, South by Southwest. And I, uh, just before this festival, I started sending out demos of the of the record that I was making. And I, I sent it to everybody, got turned down by everybody. Then I sent it to this uh, guy, uh, uh, a good friend now, uh, up in uh, Portland, Terry Courier. Um, and Terry liked it, but he didn't know what to do with it. But he knew two guys at Rounder that were starting a label. So he sent, he sent it to them. They then they liked it. They called me and they came to town during South by and they signed me and gave me enough money to to finish the record. So then I, I finished the record. It came out and then it it did it did remarkably well. I was I was really surprised, especially here in, in Austin. Austin is a big music town, and there are a couple of big gun radio stations, and both of them uh, immediately jumped on the record and were, and were playing it a lot. And then we were going around all the likely things. Um, and then as those things sometimes do, it just kind of crumbled a little bit, fell apart, and there you go. <laughs> was it more stressful recording and performing an album under your own name after you'd performed for so long under 2020? Or was it an exciting time? It was, it was very stressful. And I've talked with Steve about this too, how playing in 2020, it's like breathing. You know, it's just so natural. Steve and I, we did it for so long, whether it was 2020 or college stuff or high school or middle school or elementary school stuff. We've just done it for so long. And, you know, when you have somebody, a partner, when you have somebody to share it with, you know, it makes the makes the good things better, the, the bad things not, not as bad. But when you're the guy, especially when you're not used to it, it's stressful, and I, I found it that way, and actually found, uh, as time went by, I started developing this odd stage fright that um, that I still experience even now, uh, except when Steve and I played it. It's right that I should care about you Try to make you happy when you're blue it's right, it's right. 
because I love you. I know it came out after L.A. Story, but I wanted to to touch on um, 12 Strings and Tambourines because, you know, this was a collection of cover versions. What inspired that project? And was it difficult to choose the songs? Well, you know what, Stephen? What if this will reveal me to be a little bit on the lazy side. I I had done a bunch of songs for various tribute records, if you will. Um, like, um, we, I did a Gene Pitney, I did a... Um, uh, a Nick Lowe and, and several other things, uh, Ricky Nelson. Um, so I had a big jump on the record just from those that I had the right, that I had the rights to use. So then I just added a couple more, put an original tune on there. I think there's two original tunes on there and, and there you go. That's, that's, that, that was 12 strings. Uh, were you hesitant to put that project together um, rather than an album of all originals? Or was it exciting to just sort of, you know, release your own approach uh, to these classics? You know, honestly, I just thought that it was a way to, to keep my hand in the game a little bit. I was going through a, um, in a life sense, I was going through a pretty tough time um, and just didn't have, the, didn't have it in me to, to write write a record so uh, but I wanted to make sure that 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 both as a recording artist and as my my recording studio in Austin uh, it was important I felt I felt like it was important for me to to keep to keep trying to have a presence in, in, in that business so that that really was the the plan for it California sun is there shining for me with the promise of a brighter day Coast is just waiting for me. It's gonna wash all my tears away. I don't know why I've ever waited so long. I cover songs and I try to pretend. Radio fades as I pass another town, just waiting for my life to begin. Now let's talk about your 2004 album, L.A. Story, which you've just reissued digitally as a deluxe edition featuring acoustic versions of the album's tracks. What initially inspired you to go back and revisit your heady Hollywood days on the actual original album? As with so many records like that, I, uh, I, I had a song uh, that I... That I knew, I knew that it was about. I knew it was about something. I just wasn't exactly sure what it, what it, what that something was. It was uh, the very first song on the record, called "Waiting," and and it was about the period of time between when Steve left uh, Stillwater, Stillwater, Oklahoma, is where he and I went to school. When Steve left Stillwater and I graduated, where all of a sudden Steve was gone, you know, and. And I just felt like I was waiting for the next thing. I was waiting to to take a step. You know, I was ready to get out of school and um, and 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 try this try this this next thing. So once that song came about, then a couple of the others then and I re and it, and it came came to me what it, what that song was about. I realized that there was other things that I wanted to talk about that 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 talking about that experience of my life, which really wasn't that long. It was, it was five, six years, something like that. It has an arc, if you will. It has, it has the motion of moving to LA, of meeting up with friends, having, 
having friends that you're all in a project together with, um, having uh, dicey relationships, having a diminishing uh, side to the arc, and then having a realization, you know, that, that there that there is redemption, if you will, um, you know, and, and maybe even a little bit of personal forgiveness um, involved, having not uh, ultimately succeeded in a in in one of the metrics that people measure success. So that's how that record came about. And then in some ways, once I had made that decision, it was a, a matter of, of uh, plugging the holes, make, writing the narrative, and and making the songs, you know, fit into it. Little Mexican girl selling out is down on the corner Shadow of a streetlight falling across her face Watching her end. There's liberty selling the dime to a kid on a bike. The beautiful song of the desperate and the Hollywood life. What some people don't realize is that it's basically a 2020 album because it's you, Steve Allen, and Bill Belknap are the three main guys. Um, was it always the intention? for it to be a Ron Flint album, or were you kind of hoping that maybe Steve might add his side of the story and then make it a 2020 album? No, it was always going to be a solo record. Yeah, it was a very, it, it was a, the idea was that it was a, a, from a, a singular point of view, from, from one person's, one, one person's, you know, look out the windshield, if you will. Was it emotionally difficult to write these songs since, you know, you had left this period uh, behind, you know, 25, 30 years, you know, at the time of the recording of the album. Was it tough to go back and revisit some of that stuff? It was, but not, but it wasn't just because of, of uh, any nostalgic look at the past can be revealing and, and difficult, but it, it was also because of, of just life in general. You know, I wanted to do an honest retelling. I didn't want it to flinch. But at the same time, I didn't want it to. I didn't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> so it, it was hard. Uh, honestly, it it was. And I, I was looking at when I was doing the uh, the acoustic versions of the songs. I was going back to the my notebooks of so the lyrics. And you know how how when you're writing a lyric uh, and you write something that is particularly horrible, you'll scrawl it out. You know, in this angry sort of attack on the page with the pen. <laughs> In some of these notebooks, they look—they look like I attacked them with machetes, you know, because I was so, I was so wound up in it, and uh, so yeah, yeah, it was. It, it, but then on the other side, there were there were other times when I would, uh, in the song, especially like uh, with the last song in the record, "Home," where when I finished, it, I was just so completely happy with it that I was just certain that I'd stolen it from somebody, and I started. You started examining it in that because I will. I will rip somebody off in a heartbeat in, in the most kind-hearted way. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I, I, I was wondering, well, gosh, I'm so happy with this. Did I, did I, is this a direct lift from, from some record that I want? Oh, yes, I'll be
there any particular highlights on the album for you? You know, the ones that you're most proud of? Well, yeah, I I like I like the sun's gonna shine a lot. I like that lyrics um, quite a bit. Um, you know, the names being changed changed to protect the innocent. I I, th- I thought it was a really uh, straight up feeling about um, Steve and I. You know what what we were uh, trying to do. I like Mary's World uh, quite a bit. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, bass parts. Bill and Steve both just play so great on it. They rescue some aspects of the record. Um, and, and Home in a While, I think, is um, a really good song to end a statement like that. Uh, with It keeps it from being all, all oh, woe is me. Uh, and and shows a little bit of... of uh, of light and, and promise and hopefulness, um, which, which at, by the time I got through writing the record, I, I realized w- what a lucky turn of events it had all been for me to come home and to meet these wonderful people, meet my beautiful wife, have these children who are, who are if not angels, they are mostly angelic. And to, 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 I've been fortunate to live, you know, the life that, that I live. I've been uh, a working uh, musician this entire time has uh, raised three good kids and take and have taken care of them. And um, so, how many people can can get to do that? Um, a lot of people tomorrow morning are going to be out putting shingles on a roof, and tomorrow morning I'm going to be sitting in this recording studio recording a beautiful record. So I'm one of the lucky ones. I I, I really and truly am. The acoustic versions, they're much more emotionally powerful and really they reveal a lot more of the emotions that really went into those songs. Were these specifically recorded recently uh, for inclusion on, on this deluxe edition? Yes, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory about it. There's a, there's a mastering engineer here in town. Uh, his name is Jerry Tubb. He owns a Terranova Mastering. And this guy's brilliant. I mean, this this guy, this guy can make chicken salad out of you know what. He's just that he is that guy. He's the, he's the guy that you take something to that needs fixing. But he's also the guy if you take something to him that's already pretty good, he'll just make it brilliant because he has those ears and he knows. You know, he's a great musician as well. He did the original mastering on Ellen's story, but now time has gone by. He's learned a lot. He's equipment has upgraded massively and his his mastering studio is it's got to be in the top 10 in the country well he remastered it and when he did it all sounded so much better and he made a statement to me said gosh can you imagine what this would sound like if he recorded it now because he's been my mastering engineer for the last 15 17 years so as as my studio has evolved, and hopefully as my recording skills have, have evolved, um, the sounds and my my skill levels hope maybe have improved uh, a bit. So they got me thinking, well, maybe I should just put one or two songs reimagined on here so that in a commercial sense, it's, okay, well, this is what it could sound like. This is a different idea. This is a different way of looking at it. So once I had done the first couple it was kind of like a snowball rolling downhill. It just had its own momentum. And I had time, you know, I had recording time. 
uh, which is the great benefit of owning the studio. And and just I just stayed with it, and then eventually had had the full set. And and, and the ultimate though reason for doing it was to to was to put a um, a, a finale on it. Was to say, okay, here it is. This is what it was. This is what it is now. And now I'm working on my next record and. I don't know if you're like this, Stephen, but I'm, I'm, a lot of artists are—they have a—they have to clear the deck before they can go on to the next thing. If you know what I mean, they just—they can't have these ideas rattling around in their mind until they—they they finalize them, even when they know that they want to finalize them because they see this next thing out there. And that was a little bit of how Ellen's story, the deluxe version, was for me. Spencer's in Vietnam. Mike is still in the can We're selling some dope Got caught on vine And I'm playing in this band Still doing the best that I can Always believing that the sun's gonna shine this time Given that you have the electric and the acoustic versions of L.A. Story, which version do you think more accurately describes the mood that you feel about that time period? Which one would you want somebody to sit down if they've never heard the album before? Which one do you want them to hear first? Well, I think to if you were to advocate what you just said, to accurately capture uh, the emotion of the times, it would be the first version. But I am like most musicians, most recording artists, I think, who would say, oh, the last thing I did is the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> and and uh, I was talking with uh, uh, Dwight about this, and he says he has that same syndrome that, which one is your favorite? Well, my favorite is the one that I'm just about to finish. Because it has that, you know, it has that freshness about it. You now operate Jumping Dog Studio in Austin. Do you frequently work with young musicians that remind you uh, of that excitement that, that you and Steve had in the 70s? I do. And when they're, when and some of these guys are really, really good. I'm thinking of someone specifically right now. And I, I, hear, I hear how great their melodies are, and I, I can tell that they've worked hard on them. And their chord progressions are clever. And their lyrics, you can tell... They're not tossing it away. They they work on it and they drill down on it, and it gives me it gives me hope because I uh, I don't want to get on this political thing again, but I really think that what the world needs is, is they need they, they need somebody like that. They need a great musician with a great heart to you know to point the way a little bit, you know, to be that to be that guiding star that, that's out there that uses music in a, in a way that, that draws everybody together. Um, Dylan, the Beatles, the Stones, Springsteen, those writers, um, Woody Guthrie, Hank Williams, those writers that, that have the power of making that common thread that, that, that runs through everyone's hearts and souls and, and helps them to be their, their, better, their better selves. And I see that in, in some of these artists that come here and record and it makes me so proud and so happy. And then I'll tell you, there's the inverse side too. 
there are the ones that don't do that. That they're they're intrigued by the trappings of it. Especially in Texas, there's a huge live music scene here in Texas. And some of the music is just not as good as it should be. They're not trying hard. They're not trying to say something. They're not, you know, even trying to reflect on a bad situation is sometimes a good thing to do. They're not trying to do anything like that. Those artists, uh, they depress me a little bit. But there are so many of the other side, and I, I hear them, and I think, is this the guy? Is this guy going to write the song? Is, is this the next million miles away that connects everybody and and lifts everybody up? Maybe it is. Oh, I grab it, I don't want to. I used to feel forgiveness, but I don't feel so much no more. After all these years, are you surprised that 2020's music is still so beloved? I am. And, I'm, I, and I'll tell you, it pleases me no end. It, um, uh, and, and, you know, I've had people ask me, well, gee, do you feel feel funny? You know, you've done all these things. You've made all these records, but you're defined by the stuff that you did all those years ago. And I, and I, I don't feel funny about it. I'm happy about it. I was the lucky passenger on that train. And I'm so, so glad that that anybody likes it and that it made made somebody's musical life a little richer. I'm just I'm just as proud as I can be of it. Now where can listeners purchase the deluxe edition of LA Story and keep up with all things Ron Flint and Jumping Dog Studio? Well Ron Flint uh, dot here now uh, through C D baby. You can you can buy the record there. You can buy it. I think you can buy it just about everywhere. The downloads are sold, you know, and there's there's all the stream, all the streaming services. So I'm pretty sure that it's it's available. <laughs> you'll you'll not uh, struggle finding it. I'm pretty sure. That's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank Ron Flint for sharing his story and sharing his music. The show is dedicated to Steve Allen, Chris Alagi, and all the former members of 2020, and it is also dedicated to you, the Beach Blanket Fort Bingo listener. Thank you for your support, and uh, we hope to see you on the next episode. Until then, smell you later. <laughs>